Sad song. 
Oh, Lou. It's a sad song. Lou Reed, I think that's off Berlin. Yeah. It's off Berlin. Um, you're listening to Ink Sud, CITR 101.9 FM. It is another blistering hot day in Vancouver. Uh, it's about 10 past 2. 10 past 2 already. Um, my first guest um, we're about to start out with is Dave Lapp. And uh, we're going to be talking for the next over half an hour. And then after that, I'll be playing an interview with uh, Brian Sendelbach that I did last week, um, who is known for the comics for Smell of Steve. Um, Dave, how you doing? Doing pretty well. How about you? I'm doing pretty good. Um, your book, uh, Drop In, but Vancouverites may also know you for the uh, strip um, Children of the Atom. <laughs> yeah. Which was in the Georgia Strait for quite a while. About five years, from about 1998 to around 2003, something like that. But by my count, five years. That's a while. That's a good run. Oh, I think for an alternate weekly strip in Canada, it's like an eternity. Five <laughs> years. I think they didn't realize how long it was running. And, and then somebody they... went, oops, oh, five years. How did he, you know, how'd that get past us? So. It's very different from uh, dropping. I was looking at it. It's very, uh, very different. Well, the the Children of the Atom is kind of me processing a lot of the problems that I was dealing with at that art center and dealing with it more metaphorically. Uh, Children of the Atom was before drop-in, so I wasn't doing the life stories about the kids in the drop-in center. I was just processing it through Franklin Boy and Jim Jam Girl. And then when they canceled the strip... It was just the sort of tandem where I was just starting to write stories about the actual kids instead of making it metaphorical. And that was the transition. They canceled Children of the Atom. And then I started doing these things called uh, window mini-comics where the stories were largely about the kids in the drop-in centers. So tell me about the transition in style. Uh, Because it's like, it's basically, it's the first stuff's very, uh, I was kind of describing to Colin, kind of looked like very Mark Bear. Yep. Influenced. And yep, totally stuff. Mark Bear influenced. Uh, when I was drawing that, I mean, I had never seen anything like... The two big influences were uh, uh, Mark Bear with Amy and Jordan in terms of opening my eyes to comics and Chester Brown with Ed the Happy Clown. And just looking at it, two totally contrasting styles said to me you're allowed to do that in comics. And that was a real eye-opener. I just, I stopped buying superhero comics, and I wasn't really aware of the new alternate comics. I kind of knew about Zap and stuff. But seeing these active artists producing that kind of artwork was just, uh, I couldn't believe it. It was really, you're allowed to do that? You, it doesn't have to be superheroes? It doesn't have to be Robert Crumb or S. Clay Wilson? You know. <laughs> there can only be one, S. Clay yeah. Wilson. Oh, and you were asking about the transition in styles. Yeah. And what happened was, I'd been doing Children of the Atom for a long time, again, around five years. And when they canceled it, I suddenly realized, oh, crap, now what am I going to do? And I knew my life drawing skills had kind of atrophied, because Franklin Boy and Jim Jam Girl are more graphic or abstract. And I started sketching from life. I started writing stories from life. Uh, drawing from life, sketching people on the subways, uh, drawing trees in Queens Park. I just started doing that because, well, 
well, that was the next phase, and that slowly worked itself into these window mini-comics and then later on into the uh, drop-in book. So I had to learn to become sort of naturalistic again. So maybe tell us about the drop-in center specifically. The, the actual place of the book. Let's start with the place. Okay. I considered the place when, when I was first working there, it was like a frontier. I had never worked with uh, kids before. And when you come out of art school and you're looking for work, you know, you try to do this illustration or you try to get this paying job. And I saw at OCAD a poster on the wall for volunteer position in Regent Park. And I also didn't know Toronto that well, and I didn't realize that Regent Park was, you know, poverty and uh, a place that people would say, ooh, Regent Park, you work there like a bad place. I didn't realize that. So I ventured out to see what it was like, and it didn't look so bad. I mean, the, you know, going there in the daytime didn't seem so bad, and going into the actual art center didn't seem so bad. But when you started to, when I started to work there, uh, the just the problems with the kids and the discipline problems, and then you know, back then there was you know swearing and racism and homophobia, and you know, there's a lot of problems because. The this the place was in a transition from one person who had been there for a long time to a new person, and it's it's just hard to explain. I'd never experienced anything like it. Uh, the the most pointed example is once we established, you know, kid does something sort of naughty, they get a couple of warnings and they get a timeout. And I remember sending this one little girl up the stairs. You know, she's about nine years old. You know, blondish brown hair, freckle face, big eyes. And I'm sending her out up the stairs, and she turns around and says, "Cunt!" <laughs> and I just, you know, I I work with kids, and I just was like, I'd never heard an adult ever utter that word come out of the mouth of this kid. And I, I mean, it just stopped me. It froze me. I just, I, I, it's it's impossible to express the inability to process being called a cunt by a little girl. And and then yet you get more and more of that. It started to set the stage for like, okay, you know, we've we, we've got to do some. We got to take some steps around here to to help these kids to do better and you know, help the staff to deal with <laughs> I don't know being called words and all those other <laughs> phobias or whatever. Anyway, that was that was a shocker, and that was you know that's within the first couple of months of working there. Where are you originally from? London, Ontario, which is so, you know, conservative and waspy. And I, I think sometimes when you live in an environment like that, you just don't really think about it particularly. But when you come to Toronto, you certainly notice the difference, the, you know, the, the different cultures, the busyness and whatever. And I just never realized that London was quite as conservative. And, uh, yeah. So, Children of Adam was your first, was that your first try at comics? No. My first go at comics was when I was in art school. I developed this character called The Hood, and The Hood was uh, very influenced by Charles Burns. I mean, Raw had a huge influence in me, the Charles Burns and Mark Bayer. And I did this comic called The Hood, and at the time there was a publisher called Vortex. Mm-hmm. And Vortex was the one that published Chester's, Chester yeah. Brown's first work. And what happened was while I was still in art school, they had a, when I was in first year art school, they had a comic art award from Vortex named after a fellow named Klaus Schoenfeld, who 
was a talented artist, but died very young. I don't know how old he was when he died, but he sounds like he was just in his 20s, just getting started. So they named the, uh, and he had done work for Vortex, um, with a, uh, another guy named Ty Templeton, who mm-hmm. went on to... Still do, does comics. Yeah. And um, so anyway, they named an award after Klaus Schoenfeld. I was in first year art school. I won the award. You know, I felt pretty special. Uh, I ended up developing a character, again, called The Hood. And I started doing mini-comics with it. And quite unknown to Vortex, one of their editors went to the Beguiling comic store, picked up the Hood comic, and decided to sign me up because Chester Brown was leaving Vortex. And the publisher who had met me through the awards, the Klaus Schoenfeld Award, was like, oh, like same guy, like he, the penny drop for him. Anyway, so the idea was I was to do a series for them, and we were going to call it Food, and I was to do The Hood and a few other stories, kind of like, you know, Eight Ball or Hate or something, where you have, you know, a couple of stories mm-hmm. very different from each other, but uh, in a running series. And then to shorten this story a bit, um, you know, promise we're going to print it, we're going to print it, we're going to print it, we're going to print it. It never happened, and then the company went bankrupt, and, you know, that was that. So um, I have a full finished story called The Hood, a 60-page <laughs> story, which pretty well nobody's ever seen. Yeah. Done which and which no one probably will see at this point, or? I don't know. It's... Uh, I don't know. I I still I look at it and I think uh, the people who read that mini comic way back when have found me at um at launches or other things that I do comic really events and said I really like the hood that was a great comic and I mean that's from ninety three or something and they still remember it and it's just a mini comic so I'm thinking geez maybe you know maybe it's worth printing up but it, it's such old work to me that I I don't know it just seems a little difficult to relate to. I suppose. But, eh, you know, what the hell, 60 pages, finished artwork, it's pretty easy to print it up. But it's so totally different from my other stuff. But anyway, so there, there's the answer. That's before Children of the Atom, it was The Hood, and then Children of the Atom, and then the Window Mini Comics, which turned into drop-in. Uh, the Children of the Atom, was that in any other papers in the Georgia Strait? Yeah, it was in one um, called Perimeter in Winnipeg. And uh, for a little while in one in uh, Washington, I think Washington, D.C., which seems odd to have an alternate paper, uh, called The Spark. And now when I don't, re- you know, I don't really know what happened to Spark, but I know Perimeter went under and Spark, I don't know whatever happened to it, except I would submit cartoons to them and I just, you just never hear back. So I don't know what happened with that one. So those are the main things three that it was in yeah and the georgia Strait's still running and the georgia Strait, yeah the georgia Strait's still going i don't know what their cartoons are like now but uh you know i well i never knew because it was in vancouver it was always odd sending children the atom out to vancouver and having no link with the audience except for um letters i suppose they they, they wouldn't send you a copy uh well they did at first and then they said that it was costing too much so so then i had to buy a subscription <laughs> Um, one of our local cartoonists, Robin Constabaris, used to be published in a local uh, alternative paper, and uh, her other paper that she was published was in Salt Lake City. <laughs> so, how's that for disconnect? You just, if you're going to be in the alternate comics thing in Canada, maybe it's different now with the internet, but if you're going to be craving some level of attention or something, man, you've got to put it aside. You've, you've got yeah. to focus on your work. And I figure with you know, Children of the Atom, I, I like the line from the Leonard Cohen song, uh, you know, like arrows with no target. 
you know, you're blasting them out there. Yeah. And you, you, you can sense that there could be a target out there, but just let them fly, let it fly. And You're in a vacuum. Yeah, it was a little strange, because sometimes now that I'm getting a bit of attention, it's like, okay, well, this isn't so bad. But the Georgia Strait thing was, uh, I don't know, it's hard to explain, it was strange, except when I would advertise the comic around Christmas time, I'd make a little mini-comic collecting up the children the atom, and I'd have about a millimeter of text beneath um, the comic strip. I mean, I would get 50, 60 people ordering that mini-comic, and that little ad was there for, like, what, two weeks, three weeks? And I had that much response, and I thought, man, that was impressive. And the people would write such lovely letters. That was so it wasn't zero attention. And I think when I did get it, it was uh, you know very nice, very thoughtful letters. So you know, it wasn't totally zero. It's a little bit exaggerated. Um, did you know like uh, Peter Thompson or uh, Mark Bell while in London? I didn't know Mark Bell well in London. He would do. I was still trying to be. I don't know. I my my like the hood is a pretty angry comic, <laughs> and um, very angry. And uh, Marx was always this weird, goopy, slappy, donuty, corny. And you know, I looked at it and I remember thinking, God, this is well drawn, but maybe it's this guy could just sort of focus or something, you know. So. I never actually knew him in London, but I knew of his comics. And then it just sort of came around that I actually got to know him later on. And we're both like, oh, well, we went to the same comic store, knew the same, some of the same people, and, you know, could sort of relate that way. Even coming to comic jams, he used to come to the Toronto Comic Jam, and, oh, it was so great. It was so fun drawing with him. And then, I don't know if you know too much about Mark, but then, I don't know, his world or Canadian tour continues. Is he in Toronto <laughs> or Montreal or Vancouver? Or, you know, he's here, there, and everywhere, so. He, he is our very own uh, Liz Hobo without being a hobo. Say what? You know, the littlest oh, yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> You just never know where he's going to pop up and what kind of crime he's going to solve. Yeah, I don't know what he's up to. Except, well, I know, he's in Montreal now. He's yeah. in Toronto for a while. Now he's in uh, he's in Montreal. and Putting together his uh, D&Q uh, collection. Yeah. Um, let's talk about you. Oh, sure. <laughs> I'm just going to change topic completely. So drop in. Um, my one thing when I'm reading it, and this, I may be the only person feeling this way, because, um, like, my background is I work with, uh, or I used to work with uh, street kids and teenagers. And, you know, it was very confidential, everything we dealt with. Um, and then I read this story about everyone's personal lives. How do you construct that, and how accurate is it, and what kind of permission do you work with? Well, for one thing, I changed the names. That's number one. Uh, number two, the release... Oh, and well, number two is I, I never intended them to be a book. Mm-hmm. I changed the names, but I never intended them to be a book. And the lag time on the story, the, the, those stories are all... Say, say the girl with the shoe, right? Um, there's, there's one where she... The, the, uh, a girl threw a shoe at my head. I mean, that story could be eight years old now. The names don't link up. The appearances don't link up. And the time lag, these people are, you know, 20 or 22 years old now. To make any kind of link, you would have to really work hard. Like, you would have to basically dig through that art center's history. You would have to be investigative to make the links with those kids. So my thing about putting out the personal stories is the lag time. I wouldn't have had it linked directly. 
unless I ask the kid's permission. Let me give you an example. The Tamagotchi story was permission from the parents. Mm-hmm. I still changed the name, but because it was so recent and the kid was still a kid, I, I altered it. The other stories are much, much older. I mean, the, the very first story in the book with the little girls and the one pushing her to hug me, I mean, that's from 1996. Mm-hmm. Those kids are, there's no link with them to, they're clothing the styles, photos, there's no way of linking them. So what I basically did is sort of disguise everything. And then when uh, Conundrum approached me to print, I thought, no, there's a massive lag time here. You're not going to make the links with these kids. That was my feel. I think you'd have to really, really work hard to find out who these kids are. And I think that in the second, the second section where I was at the other uh, art center, I don't even mention the art center. Dude. So there's different ways of sort of hiding things so that the only way you could find out, you'd have to really, you'd have to be an incredible sleuth <laughs> to track them down. Is, is that fair? Yeah, I think Colin has a question. Sure. I was just uh, wondering if any of the kids that are grown up now have recognized themselves in your stories, if you heard anything. No, I mean, there, I mean, there's only a thousand copies, right? And for them to pick it up and make the link, it, it's hard to... There's a couple of kids who have seen some of the stories, right? And uh, one of the one was the, the, with the dead baby squirrel. I mean, I gave a copy of that story to the, the guy in it, right? Um, I gave the Tamagotchi story to that person. There's another angel story, and I gave it to that one. But the weird thing is, is as, as the kids age and you would know them, they, you, you tell them their own story, and they're like, what? What do you mean? What are you talking about? What? And, you know, in terms of persistence of memory, it's very clear to me as an adult, but as a kid, it's just a... It, it wasn't significant to them. Yeah. It, they, they're not anchoring it with the significance that I attached to it. And that was, you know, that's always been part of the perspective. And that's why when I wrote it, I wrote it very, very carefully based on kind of what they're saying. It's very fragile that for them, it's probably broken or evaporated or smoke. But for me, it remains as tangible because I'm an adult, and they don't... It's a different way of processing. One thing I really noticed in the art style is your own appearance within it is very nondescript. Like, it's almost like you're in there as a character, but you, you're so minimal as far as your visual presence, like details. Is that, is that a specific choice? Yeah, my... <laughs> My uh, perspective on some of the alternate uh, comics is that, you know, when you get autobiographical, you know, when the story is focused on you, about you, drawing you, and everything you do, it's like, oh, for Christ's sakes, you know, you got to expand a little bit. And in, in my opinion, and that's what I tried to do with the book, and I always sort of saw myself as a bit of a cipher there in a way. You know, you do these things with these kids, you can have some level of significance, but it's, it's like you're just a wisp. You know, what, what does it really count in their lives? And when you're in Toronto with a crush of people all the time, you just don't feel so, you know, corporeal all the time. You feel, I don't know, like... A, it's more like a spirit sort of wafting through these places, and the kids come and go. So I don't see my role as as significant as very much as sort of background. And these peculiar little lives, these little dramas are so, you know, pointed and, and tough that it's not really about me. However, 
I'm an important character in terms of making these places like this run because I'm dedicated. So, you know, I'm like a little, I don't know, like a little piece of the foundation in the corner. But the interesting part is all the kids. I think, yeah. It's, something like that. I think that makes sense. It's a book about the kids. Yeah, it's really about the kids. And if it's about me, even putting my own thoughts, I felt sort of hesitant. But when, you know, some of the kids are, like, grabbing my crotch and stuff, look, I have no interest in that. I, that's not my thing. It's not a turn-on. But I'm going to put my voice in there to make it very clear that how peculiar this is. And, look, I work at the Art Gallery of Ontario. I work at Avenue Road Art School. This never happens ever. None of these kind of stories ever happens there. What the hell is going on? And that is sometimes what's an undercurrent in the book. It's like, I'm going, Christ, this friggin' poverty and all the issues. God, what the hell, right? And these little kids are carrying these very strange things with them. And what the hell is going on? And it's very disturbing. You go home after some of these events, and well, I mean, it's depressing. I mean, quite frankly, it's very depressing. And part of the way I would process it was drawing these out. Drop-in was never intended as a book. That was from a bunch of mini-comics where I would process all this crap all to get out of my system and not feel so horrible. But when you get enough friggin' stories, you know, Andy was the one that spotted it in the, the mini-comics and said, listen, if you drop all the dream stuff and some of the other stories and just put the stories of the kids together... You know, you've got this book, and at the same time, I'm like, going, oh, God, you know, this stuff is harsh. Is anybody going to want to read it? Swearing, abused, difficult kids. This is this is sad, but, you know, he was encouraging, and, and so was Joe Ullman. Joe Ullman's a superstar, and I trust him totally. So, and Chester Brown, of course, he, he kept saying, oh, these are great, these are great. <laughs> <laughs> so... You know, I had some people in my corner to kind of keep going on out there. And then now, now when I look at the book, it's still harsh, but it has the correct feel all the way throughout. You can just see the difficulties in, you know, these kids' lives and particular environments where, you know, poverty's involved. It's just mm-hmm. tough. But, but you do have a, a affection for the kids. Oh, of course. Yeah, the... Uh, it's just a peculiar thing, and I, I don't know where it comes from, except... There's some level of compassion or empathy, and I will go further to help these kids because you just see that, I don't know, they have all these obstacles, and you figure if you're that one sort of positive thing, and I'm not trying to be egotistical about it, but in a given day, if they come there, they make a piece of art, they feel happy, you're like, look, there's one tiny check mark there, one little tiny check mark in a week or a month. Once they leave the art center, then whatever. But I can be really positive and encouraging and all that stuff, and then they go home. And then that's, that's not my territory. So, uh, But at the same time, you can't let them break your heart or you're useless. And some of the stories are freaking heartbreaking. And you, you can only let it get to you so much, and then you can't, you can't let it totally get to you. But, uh, boy, it sure comes close sometimes. Well, there are times where, like, you go to the the Vietnamese family, like, you actually go into their home, which I found interesting, um, which gets your, your own self, I'd find, really involved within a situation. Well, that was a really peculiar one. I mean, that, that the, the one girl in there, I, I, I sort of, am, I, I focus a sort of like it's on Henry, Henrietta, and I'm, I'm, you know, it's not their real names, but it's actually more focused on Hien. And I had known her since she was eight. And, uh, you know, just knowing them at the art center and coming in. But, you know, you get a certain kid. 
you know, like her. And, you know, when she would come in, she wouldn't look up. She wouldn't, you know, wouldn't speak. You know, just the trauma on that kid. And you kind of somehow, you, I had a friend who was a social worker, and they said, oh, there's always that kid. There's always going to be some kid that's kind of like your go-to person or your inspiration. And it was definitely that hen. And that kid just came all the time. I mean, there's a lot of stories about her that aren't in there. But she was just always there. Year after year, her brothers and sisters, she had like, you know, uh, the three brothers, like, um, in the story, there's the four kids, and then the little baby. But she was always there. The other ones would sort of come in, come in, come in, come out. But she always, always, always would show up. And so knowing her, you would end up knowing the, the, the father would come by, right? Or the mom would come by. Now, the mom didn't speak English, but the dad liked to chat. I mean, he liked to chat, and it got... And this was actually, to be honest, it was a sort of a dream of mine, again, being a conservative London, Ontario person. I was always so curious about seeing what it was like in those brown brick buildings. I was always curious to see the environment the kids lived in. I mean, this is, again, I worked there for 13 years, and after, what, maybe eight years, I finally got to see inside one of the places. And then they were just very friendly about it and, you know, very welcoming. I felt awkward as hell. And my gut instinct was don't go in mm-hmm. because it's so awkward. But I thought, God damn it, you get in there. Listen, you are gonna you're gonna do things that a lot of average white folk never ever do. You're stepping over into another world. For me to sit there, I didn't put the one story where they're having a Vietnamese New Year and they they brought out the special silver tray with mint leaves and fresh duck blood. And you know, I just I remember saying to him like. What is that? She goes, oh, duck blood, and Dad's sitting on the floor with the other Vietnamese guys. Oh, come on, Dave, it's so delicious. Dig in. I'm like, I felt like I was going to be sick. And yet, what I'm getting at is, you can do this in a restaurant. Yeah, I've eaten pho at the, you know, pho 88 or whatever. But, man, to actually be, I don't know, in that other that other place, it's it's hard to explain. But, I mean, that came after years and years and years of knowing the one particular kid and mm-hmm. being, you know, sort of like the, the dad being friendly and that sort of thing. So it was very unusual. And that was the only family. And I still know them. I still know them today. I mean, I still talk to Ian and hear about the, you know, the problems in their life just never seemed to go away. Good God. So, so anyway, that was a peculiar situation where I actually still, still know that family. I still know them. It's unbelievable to me. It's a very multicultural experience, like it sounds like, especially like their experience being, um, you know, first generation and just all the background. It really like that must be one part of kind of what you're dealing with as far as this drop in is not just the poverty, but also like a diverse range of what are people's interests or what their background is and that clashing too. Well, to be honest, I mean, what I way back when I, uh, actually have a degree in psychology and I thought I was going to be a psychologist and then I started doing cartoons at the at, at the university paper and that was it I just I just that's where I started doing Children of the Atom is the University of Western Ontario Gazette paper and once I started doing the drawing I just you know that was it and um uh oh sorry you're saying about the diversity uh Sorry, I lost my train of thought. That's <laughs> okay. If, if you were on a tangent, continue with your tangent. Well, I was going to say just in terms of, uh, 
Oh, the psychology. I think what happens isn't everybody's, you know, to a certain degree, like a lay psychologist or a lay analyst. And the thing that interested me a lot about uh, psychology was child psychology and social psychology. Those are the ones I found the most interesting. And, gee, guess what? You know, you drop yourself into the one of the poorest neighborhoods in, you know, in Canada. Mm-hmm. Gee, and their kids, you're dealing with child psychology and social psychology in a very peculiar end. And that the immigrant, the immigrant kids, you know, whether it's language or culture or, and you're just trying, it's like you're on your feet all the time trying to interpret what the hell is going on here and problem solving. And one of the things we had an art teacher in OCAD allude to that makes art powerful is ambiguity. And that place was so damn amb- ambiguous that you are trying to make it concrete, even though this doesn't make sense. And there's some <laughs> appeal as an artist, or the psychology end, or just you know human fascination. That it just that place always has that level of fascination. Again, I compare it to Art Gallery of Ontario or Avenue Road Art School, and the kids there, you know, they have their regular sort of problems and. It seems like more like regular, whereas these kids have some kind of fracture in them all the time. And you, there's a light into them that you you see you see into them the way you don't see it with with other kids. Because the other kids, I mean, they're being polite or mannered. Whereas these kids, it's more like, uh, well, not feral kids. That's that's like very rude. They're not wild, but they remain. They retain some of that rawness that's so fascinating as opposed to, you know, I I, I don't have any road school. You know, there's a lot of kids that go to, like, you know, private school and that. I mean, Christ, they're all so polished and polite and whatever that you never really know what that kid's about, and that's fine. I don't have to. But at Regent Park, you didn't have to know about that. You just did. It would just keep kind of happening, and it's hard to explain. It's just... Well, was it difficult sometimes to know whether it the, the kids were acting the way they did because they had an impoverished background or if it was cultural differences? I think it was both. I think that, uh, well, I know that the parents, they're off in their jobs. Uh, you know, I was just talking to some kids and I was just at Regent Park today and, uh, you know, they're, they've got, they got three kids and the, drive, the dad drives a taxi and I'm not making any comment on or judgment about whether that's a good income or not, but I would imagine it's tough. I don't know what education he's bringing from Sri Lanka. You know, if this is a really intelligent, hardworking guy and he's stuck driving a taxi, I wonder what kind of stresses that produces in his life. Does it, you know, positive stress, neg- positive stress, negative stress, and then trying to provide for three kids and, you know, does the mom stay at home? And time to spend with the family, like a taxi job is... Uh... I don't know what it's like in Toronto, but in Vancouver, it's a 12-hour shift. Yeah, and the other thing that I have definitely heard, and this is, when I sound PC, it's just because I mean protective, because, you know, I there's certain things or themes that I will pick up on because the kids will kind of reveal to me a little bit. But the remarkable thing I pick up on is the number of kids that the problem-solving at home includes them being hit. Mm. And as a common theme, that with the kids who often have issues, I think that's a pretty common theme. To the point that sometimes when kids would get in trouble, 
they'd almost just sort of stare at you like, are you, are you just going to hit me? Like, why are, you, why are you reasoning with me? Why are you talking? Why don't you just smack me and we're done here? And I, I'm not going to hit them, obviously. But at the same time, I thought, what is with this kid? They're, they're, they're waiting for something. Instead of discussing, like we did in our household, they're, like, waiting for something. And, and the direct stories I've heard of you know, different levels of beating, whether it's the kids or the wife, you know, there's enough of them that I'm thinking, okay, that's not common, not for everybody, but there's enough of it that that is a, there's, there's some significant factoring in terms of uh, problem solving. Or problem creating. Yeah, I know, I know, it's a toughie. Um, what other interests do you have in comics that you like to be working on? Do you have other projects on the go? Well, I'm doing... Uh, a comic about when uh, like a graphic novel when about when I was a kid and um, a lot of it has to do I suppose in in a way we were probably like country kids we weren't but just the way it was in London Ontario at that time there was field after field after field behind us I mean just all these fields or ponds or abandoned you know fruit orchards and I think it was just all farmers field just waiting uh, for development, but that was like our playground and uh, unstructured time, just go and wander around and hunt for mice and frogs. And uh, I mean, I've got other subtexts and subplots that go with it, but uh, it's when, you know, as I draw it, it's like this dreamy feel, just endless hours walking around in the field. And that's that's the one I'm working on. I mean, I, I just, just just yesterday, 180 pages of pencil so far, on route to 300 or so. But uh, that's a lot of pencils. That's a lot of pencils. Well, I'm doing the penciling first. I was wanted to do penciling then inking, and then Chester Chester's got he kept getting stuck for different reasons. But uh, there's a fellow named Zach Wharton, and I convinced Chester to. Not do pencils and inks, pencils and inks. When you get a flow going just with the pencils, you got that flow. When you go back and forth with a long thing, it's just, you, you don't get that rhythm. So I decided just to pencil the whole thing and then ink the whole thing. But, again, that's 300 pages or so, and that's going to take me a while. So. Well, and Chester's own cartooning strategy is far more uh, elaborate. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he... Uh, <laughs> I, I know Chester really well. Like you know, I you know hang out with him and visit his, his bachelor his bachelor pad. And did Chester's, you vote for him? What's that? Did you vote for him? Uh no. I we don't need to get into that. Yeah, I didn't just go that direction, but um, I learned a lot about the method, knowing Chester and how he works, and he's very methodical. But it seems like. Once he's got things in place, he actually doesn't have to think about them that much. That being said, oh God, you know he had he had done I think thirty five pages of p- pencils and inks. He'd finished thirty five pages of pencils and inks on his next story, and I, I don't know what he's calling it. I he may have told me, but I forgot. But it's the prostitution stories anyway. And he he just dropped those pages, thirty five finished pages. Chester Brownard. And he stopped it because he read Fletcher Hanks. <laughs> and he started and he started again and I was like, Chester, man, like 
God. You, uh, anyway, if any, any people out there who do, do pages or do artwork, you know, if you have 35 finished and you restart, man, oh, man. And being influenced by Fletcher Hanks. I don't even people. want to know where that's going to go. God, any, anyway, but now he's working away at it, and I, I think that uh, he's probably got the the end in sight. I'm not sure when, but he, he's getting the pages done. He got pretty distracted by that other stuff. So, Well, he redrew a bunch of Louis Riel because of the, the shrinking heads. Yeah, and he actually, when they were starting to re-release the Ed comics, he started redrawing that. He's going to redraw all of it. So... He's methodical, but he's you know there's there's some fault factors there too. So I'm trying to take away the good part of the methodical, which is you know doing a lot of overlays to get things right. Yeah, and that is a really helpful thing using tracing paper and stuff. You know to sort of get things right, and and also in terms of just your craft. Uh, his his original art is just beautiful to look at. It's stunning, and you know I got some uh, some artwork from him, and so I bought it from him. And that was a real turning point for me in terms of craft. You just look at, I mean, there, there were some of the covers from um, the reprinted Ed series. And just, I mean, the line work, it's absolutely stunning. On the covers, you can't see it, but if you see the original, it's unbelievable. And I thought, well, what's he doing, it the short way or the long way? And the long way is just so beautifully done. I thought, okay, there you go. That's, That's how he's got to do it. As you're looking for shortcuts. You know, if you wanted to have sort of that beauty of craft, you can't just shortcut it all the time, you know? Hear that, uh, Kochelka? Well, <laughs> craft is the enemy. Yeah I, yeah, I admire him that he can just sort of crank those things out. And that in the spirit of it, that he can sort of do those pages, you know, as sort of one-offs. And for the, you know, say the 20 that I find are sort of, you know, not that interesting... Man, when he hits one, it's like really a gem. It's a real beauty. So he's going on the sort of the quantity end. And when he hits that quality one, it really is charming and beautiful. But mm, I don't know. I, I prefer to sort of craft things and take my time as opposed to just banging it out. So There we go. Let's yep. stick with that. Um, we're at the end of our time slot. Sure. Um, I've got to play another interview now. Uh the book for folks check out dave lap drop in from conundrum books a good canadian boy eh i think so yeah for sure there we go support canadian by canadian uh printed in canada i think so yeah i think this is all very canadian it, it's got bacon and uh maple syrup in the spine to hold <laughs> yeah, it together scratch and, and uh, sniff yeah. it's printed uh yeah i think so printed and bound in canada by galvin press there we go. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Dave. Thanks. Yeah, it was great. Uh, say hi to Chester for me. Oh, yeah? From Colin Upton, right? Yes. Yeah. You guys know him? or? Yeah, Colin does. Yeah. Oh, yeah? Okay, sure. Yeah. Um, thanks, Dave. Okay, you're welcome. Okay, bye. Bye. And now I'm going to play the interview uh, with uh, Brian Sundelback, uh, Smell of Steve Comics. Um, yeah, next week, uh, hopefully, uh, we'll be chatting with uh, Steve Bissett. I think that'll be a fun interview. Don't you, Colin? Steve, is that? Cool.